listening to a Larry Sanders show podcast. Don't you know that you're all a part of the show? So the better you are, the better Larry is. But Larry's not here. So the pressure's off. I hope you'll enjoy this Larry Sanders recap podcast. Watch along in conversation show. Hello, and welcome to It's the Larry Sanders Show's show. I'm here with my sneezing co-host, Max. And I'm here with my allergenic co-host, Jason. We will be your guides each week as we break down a new episode of The Larry Sanders Show. This week, we're discussing The New Producer, which aired on September 12th, 1992. It was directed by Todd Holland and written by Gary Shandling, Dick Blasucci, Paul Sims, Howard Gerwitz, and Chris Thompson. In this episode, Artie is stuck at home recovering from an emergency appendectomy. His temporary replacement tries to become less temporary, and a memo circulates that puts everyone on edge. Guest stars include David Letterman producer Robert Morton and comedian Jeff Cesario. We want to start this week by apologizing for last week's show. It was unprofessional, and we obviously hesitated to release it. In the intervening days we have listened to and reflected on last week's episode, as well as how it was received by our audience. Of course, I maintain full responsibility for how the show progressed and how it precipitously ended. We continue to listen and to learn. For example, we learned that several members of our audience were frustrated by the episode, and in particular, by our guest's violation of my personal privacy. But I would like to thank the members of our audience who reached out with well wishes and checked in about my recovery. I'm healing, and my friendship with Jason is healing. Yes, that's right. Even though Max booked the guest and vouched for the guest, I am maintaining full responsibility. I violated Max's privacy initially, and our guest exacerbated the situation. Exactly. Our guest was downright offensive. The entire affair was in bad taste, and we regret inviting the guests to join us on the podcast. Friendships can go up and down, but Jason and I are committed to The Larry Sanders Show, to It's The Larry Sanders Show's show, to you, our audience, and most of all, to each other. We will move past this incident, beginning with the episode today. And we will put more thought into the guests we platform on our podcast Guests who respect our audience, unlike that scumbag Brett Davis, at Brett Davis RIP on all social media. Now a quick break. Welcome back to It's the Larry Sanders Show's show. Um, We're so excited to introduce our guest for this episode. Um, He was a national media reporter for the New York Times for over 25 years, beginning in 1989, and is now an analyst for CNN. He is also the author of The War for Late Night, as well as the classic, classic book, The Late Shift, Letterman Leno, and the Network Battle for the Night, and was a screenwriter of its movie adaptation from HBO. 
Recently, he executive produced and appeared in the six-part documentary series The Story of Late Night for CNN, plus the series The History of the Sitcom, also for CNN. So we can think of really no better person to have on our show to talk about the history of late night television and especially the really tumultuous years that the Larry Sanders show satirizes. So Bill Carter, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Well, thanks. And thanks for that very accurate introduction. You you got the whole landscape in there. (laughs) Well, we got to present your bona fides because they are strong and we, you are the person to talk to about this period of, of history. So as we've been watching and analyzing the Larry Sanders show, what's really interesting and really impressive is how it's able to either just slyly allude to or directly engage with and satirize the business model of late night TV. So at this time in the 90s, what is the economic you know, business model of late night talk shows and really television networks generally? Well, the, the economic model for a late night show in that era particularly was unbelievably attractive because there was a period of time when Johnny Carson's show would generate over $100 million in profit for NBC a year. Uh, so it was incredibly valuable property, and and certainly Gary Shanley, having been a guest host, would be completely aware of all this and all the important how important it was. The show was super important for for the network, and so the networks could loom over that fictional version, you know, as a you know this this master that you had to constantly satisfy. But what was interesting about Late Night and what I found when I was writing the book is that. It was a, a, a concept that basically generated gigantic amounts of money because in the early days, it started out as a 90-minute show, really an hour and 45 minutes in New York because Steve Allen, the first Tonight Show host, actually did a 15-minute version of that in New York alone. So did Carson, by the way, when he first started. But anyway, that's, that's a huge amount of time every night with a tremendous amount of commercial availability and inventory for them to sell. And the costs were so contained because you had to pay a certain amount for your band and your prop department, whatever, and your host. But then it was gravy because Steve Allen's producer, when he first started the show, made this decision that every single guest on the show would get scale, that you wouldn't have to pay them special amount of money to go. I think it was $256 originally for, for, and you could get, you know, a juggler or Frank Sinatra. That was what they would. That's what you would pay them. So it was this fantastic economic model, and it continued for a long, long time. And particularly in the '90s, it was exploding because it, it, finally they were expanding it. And David Letterman had come on, and David Letterman was successful. And now CBS was kicking up interest because they were chasing David Letterman. So it was going to expand, and the economic model, which other networks were desperate to get into, because here was NBC controlling it for all this time. They were desperate to get into it, and Shanley was right in the middle of it because of, of his role that he, that he'd had on the Tonight Show, and the possibility that was once held out to him that he himself would be the host of the Tonight Show. So, in this same vein, both on the Larry Sanders Show and in real life, we hear a lot about affiliates and how affiliates maybe make demands on the network or the hosts. So, could you just help for our audience who might not be familiar? Um, what is an affiliate? What sort of power do they have? What's clearance? Yeah. These sorts of ideas. It's so interesting, Jason, because that 
was so important and now has greatly diminished because local television is so less important than it was. It started with radio, and radio was a local. People would just start a radio station. Some guy you know, who had some money would start a radio station in Philadelphia or Boston. And, you know, it became this huge cultural phenomenon to have radio. But they were individual stations. And then NBC and, and, and CBS decided they could put together these groupings of stations get programs that played on all the stations and tell them, you don't have to buy programs. We'll provide the programs for you, but you carry our programs and we'll share the advertising revenue. That's really how a network was built. Networks would themselves own a, a group of stations, five stations or whatever, and they'd get them in the biggest markets, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles. So those were very essential because the network owned those stations. But in order to build a network, you had to gr find groupings of big cities and small. You had to go to Missoula, Montana as much as you had to go to San Francisco. And they built their networks that way. But basically the network in the first 50 years of television and going back to radio even before that was made up of stations from various cities and they would affiliate themselves with a network and that would, and they would have to agree to clear the network show to carry it on their station for it to become a nationwide show. So they they had enormous importance because if a, an affiliate in a big city like I don't know Cleveland or Detroit or St. Louis or someplace said, you know, I don't want to carry this show. I'm going to carry something else. That would affect the entire rating for that show. So now the network would have some leverage because of a. An affiliate was being that rebellious, it could say, you know, there's another station in your market. It's an independent station. And if you stop carrying our programs, we're going to give all, all our stuff, including like the NFL on the weekend, to, you know, that independent station. So they had some leverage that, that way. Playing up to the affiliates was essential. It was, it was really critical for, for shows. And in late night, it was especially important because Carson had so much power he could make the affiliates do what he wanted but the affiliates really loved to use those late night hours for their own product they could buy reruns of a sitcom and put it on at 11:30 instead of using the network show like one of the competitors to to uh carson was pat sajak who was hired on by cbs for a while and the affiliates despised the show they didn't like the show they went they started canceling him like crazy they started to buy Arsenio Hall's show, a syndicated show, which made him a phenomenon. And they put on reruns of these sitcoms and things. And the network had to give up its late night show because they didn't have affiliates to, to carry the show. And that became the same problem when Fox tried to start a show. So the affiliates were enormously important. They had to agree to forego a certain amount of revenue because they would make more if they bought a sitcom. They'd control all the advertising time. If they ran with the network show, they'd only get like a couple of spots each half hour. Now, if you're Johnny Carson and those spots are huge, the, lo the local affiliate is thrilled. But if you're Pat Sajak and nobody's watching Pat Sajak, then you have no interest in that. So, yes, the affiliates were enormously important to, to a network and very, very crucial in launching a late night show. So then what? how is late night changing at the same time in late 
80s, early 90s, right before, you know, Carson retires and there's the big shakeup is, you know, is cable changing what they're doing? Is their viewership down? What What is the going on at this time? Well, Carson had not really lost his status as the king of late night, but his audience was getting older and NBC was getting worried about it um, because they sold to advertisers based on viewers between the ages of 18 and 49. And they were not watching Carson so much. And the big specter on the horizon then became uh, Arsenio Hall because Arsenio Hall, who started out doing a uh, this, he started out filling in for Joan Rivers when she failed on Fox, but he quickly made a deal and was on uh, CBS on mainly on in syndication. And he had a big following of young urban viewers. And that scared, scared NBC. But they would not get to the point where they would go to Johnny and say, Johnny, when are you leaving? Uh, because he was so important to their network and still pulling in all kinds of profits. So it was a very crucial time. I mean, they had to face the fact that Carson had had the job for 30 years and no one had challenged him. And now he was a challenger uh, for young viewers, especially. And they couldn't say it's time to elbow him out. They had to just wait for him to make the decision. And they kept putting off what was a logical move, which was, should we lock in David Letterman? Because David Letterman had come on at, at 1230 at night and just done a spectacular job and become a culture phenomenon. And they had him in-house. And it certainly seemed to most people that he was the heir apparent. But they also had uh, brought in Jay Leno to be the permanent guest host. Although their original plan was to split that between Jay Leno and Gary Shandling. That was their original plan, was to give one week to Leno when Carson was on vacation and the next week to, to Gary. And, uh, and Gary sort of pulled his, his, himself out of that. And Jay, who's the most indefatigable person you will ever meet, uh, pushed very hard and, and made himself, gave himself a much, much higher profile. While, and all of this is roiling at the time when they have to decide, you know, what's the future of, of The Tonight Show? And if it's Letterman, then we have to get another guy because we, we want to keep the 1230 show going. And what happens if one of these people go to another network and start another late night show, which no one has ever really done on a network successfully to challenge Carson? So the, the, it was a very fraught period for NBC. For, for years and years, people have been obsessed with the late night wars that you chronicled, especially the ones between Leno and Letterman. And even, you know, the Larry Sanders show itself was obsessed with this conflict. Yes, it was. And, you know, but, you know, not only was the Larry Sanders show just satirizing this period, it, you know, becomes intertwined with it, as you mentioned, you know, the... You know, it becomes into the story itself, you know, first and foremost with Gary Shandling himself, who, you know, as you said, stepped down as Carson's permanent guest host of The Tonight Show and then was mm -hmm. also considered to replace David Letterman on NBC and even to host yeah. a show following Letterman on CBS. So could you tell us the story of Shandling's involvement in this whole saga? Well, Sh Shandling had been a somewhat regular guest host uh, for, for Johnny 
uh, Johnny took many nights off, which late night hosts have never done since, because no one has the confidence that Johnny did, that no, that someone would come on and be better than him. Uh, but Shanley did it and was very good. And, and uh, I know that uh, Peter LaSalle, who was executive producer for Carlson Show, was very close to Gary, very, very close to Gary, and really promoted him uh, as a potential late night host of the future. And certainly was in his skill set. I thought he was very good at it. When he was guest hosting, I wanted to see the show. I, I, I thought Gary was terrific. Um, but it was interesting when they decided that they would divide this regular guest hosting job, which had originally been Joan Rivers, was the original permanent guest host. They wanted to divide it between Shandling and Leno. And Shan, I don't know how many weeks, they didn't do it very long before Gary said, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. And I don't know whether it was because Gary had more ideas, creative ideas that he wanted to do, which I, he, he did, and he was brilliant at that, or whether he did not want to get down into the muck with Leno and Leno's incredible manager, <laughs> Helen Kushnick. Uh, I, I, I'm, I, I, he never really addressed that with me. That He just decided he, he pulled himself out of it. And he didn't want to be in that particular world. And he maintained that because, as you said, he could have replaced um, Letterman when they gave it to, to Leno. He could have replaced Letterman at 1230. Uh, NBC would have been thrilled to have him instead of Conan, who was a complete unknown. <laughs> then, and when they... When Lorne Michaels wanted to pick Conan, the NBC, several of the NBC executives were like, no way, who is this guy? And they were on the phone constantly with Brad Gray, who was, who was Gary's manager, famously. Uh, but Gary didn't want to do that. He didn't, I don't think he wanted to follow Leno. I don't, I, I don't think he thought that was, you know, at his level. Like, I think he felt like he was at least at Jay's level, so he didn't want to follow him. And then the same thing with, Car with going over to... And, and by the way, I should point out, nobody that I knew in the comedy business wanted to replace David Letterman. They did not want to put, take on that chore. Replacing Carson, because Carson had aged out of the job, was different. But replacing Letterman, who for that entire generation was a legend, an absolute legend, they did not want any part of that. They just did not want to take that on. So, and I think that certainly had a factor for Gary. I know it was why Dana Carvey didn't do it. Uh, so, you know, I think that was also a factor. But I think Gar Gary was just interested in creating something for himself that was different and original. And maybe not, it was in the late night realm after all, but it had a, you know, it had a completely different take and m way more creative and, you know, one of a kind. When Joan Rivers tried to get her own show on Fox, she famously sort of ruined her relationship with Carson in the process. Um, and in one version of the events, right, she made this move because she wasn't on some quote unquote list uh, held by NBC executives about the possible people who could replace Carson. Um, do you get a sense Shandling was on that list and, and who else was sort of in the mix, either officially or maybe maybe unofficially? I'm sure Shanley was on that list. Uh, I'm sure Letterman was on that list. I'm sure Lennon was on that list. I'm sure Seinfeld was on that list. Uh, and maybe a few others. Um, I don't, I've never 
was able to verify whether or not she actually saw something like that list or not. But I don't have any reason to doubt that NBC would have been reluctant to give the show uh, permanently to Joan Rivers. And not only because she's a woman, although I do think that was a factor. I think sexism was definitely a factor. But Joan was a, an abrasive performer in, in, in a lot of ways. And you could see them sort of like wondering, will this work in middle America? Will, you know, will this play the way Johnny plays? It wouldn't surprise me if she was right about that. You know, any comic who was a big comic at that time was given a shot at, at being a guest host. And sometimes not even comics. They would try anybody. But like Burt Reynolds had done extremely well uh, as, a, as a substitute host. And his name was definitely kicked around uh, to be the host. Um, but LaSalle, who I got to know incredibly well and is a, just a wonderful guy, I mean, um, he, he and became known as the host whisperer. Hmm. He had particular ideas of what it was that would make you work as a host, you know. And, and he was constantly experimenting, trying to find somebody who would fill that role. So he... They plugged in, a lot. you know, David Brenner was always talked about, for example. But I, I think LaSalle particularly knew that you didn't need a comic to be the host of a, of, of a land show. You needed a broadcaster. You needed a funny guy who was a broadcaster who could handle television, which is what Letterman was fantastic at. He, had, he was just a, he was a gifted guy handling the medium who was also extremely funny, as was Carson just incredibly gifted with just relating to people and, you know, being able to listen and talk about things in the news in a, in a deeper way than a comic normally does. So it was, a, it was, even though there was a lot of guys who you would think could do the job, there weren't that many that were really seriously considered, I don't think. In your book, and you, you mentioned Brad Gray here tonight, yes. and in your book, as I was reading it, Brad Gray, who's Gary Shandling's manager and, and also, you know, in charge of the production company, Brillstein Gray, which was the production company for the Larry Sanders show. He seems like he's got his hand. He's central to the Gary Shandling story. And it really seems like he's got his hands everywhere in this um, this situation uh, for taking, you know, figuring out what's going to happen at NBC because he's not only Gary Shandling's representation. It's he's also Lorne Michaels and also Dana Carvey's. Absolutely. And so Lauren yes. Michaels is working on getting Conan the job. Dana Carvey is, you know, thinking about being considered for this. And then Gary Shandling's being considered for this. I don't know if we, we're going to rise to the level of saying this is conflict of interest, but he's definitely got his hands everywhere in this situation. Well, it, it, it's Hollywood. <laughs> There's no such thing as conflict of interest <laughs> for, most, in the, for the most part. Brad was a incredibly ambitious guy. I mean, he really was. I mean, that whole period when... It looked like, you know, he had he had the reins of what was going to happen somewhere in late night, either because of Lorne having control of the 12:30 slot, or what whether Gary would take it, or whether Dana was going to take it, and he was in the middle of all that, and he, you know, he basically wound up not really having a piece of it because he didn't represent Conan. So yeah, he was he had his hands all over the business. He he really did. And uh, and he liked to 
talk off the record. So I had a lot of great conversations with Brad. And and he was cagey. He was very cagey about things. Um, and so, you know, let's not just, I'm not asking you directly about Brad Gray, but when you do these sorts of reporting back, we know we've been reading through your reporting of this time period in the Times, and you know, different talent who are maybe angling for the job are giving you, you know, stories about, you know, X, Y, and Z is, this is my situation. You know, they're asking me to do the show. Is that attempting, is that, is that sort of reporting? Do you think that you're doing, is that affecting the network's decision itself? Or is it trying to win, you know, the court of public opinion? What do you think your role there as a, as a journalist was? Well, the, uh, obviously they were, Everybody wanted to plant their own flag, for sure. Uh, that wasn't just in that period. It continued on. You know, Norm MacDonald wanted to get a show. He wanted, to, he wanted me to advance his prospects or whatever. And that wasn't my job. It wasn't my job to pick a guy, you know. Uh, it was my job to say, well, what's real here? What, what's really going on? And, you know, I had many contacts at the networks, too. And... I could sort of sift through what was uh, BS and what was real right. and uh, where the real interest was. So, um, you know, so I think were they trying to go through me to send a message occasionally? Occasionally they would try to do that. I know Jay absolutely did that on occasion. But as I, as I said, I would not, I didn't tailor anything to anybody. I just right. would report what, what I knew uh, at the time. So... To bring it back to the third man in our story, Gary Shandling, I think it's it's fascinating how the Larry Sanders show, you know, blurs the lines between the fact and fiction when it spoofs all of this history. And, you know, we we've recently been talking about this episode, The Guest Host, which is where Dana Carvey comes on to guest host the show and becomes a potential rival in late night, you know, potentially getting his own late night show. And then yeah. in the second season, there's the whole uh, storyline about Larry trying to steal Tom Snyder away from Letterman, which is over a year before Tom Snyder would actually be hired by Letterman to follow him on CBS. So, you know, on the Larry <laughs> Sanders show, there's all these instances of life imitating art. Are there any other moments? I don't know how long it's been since you've seen the show, but are there any other moments that kind of stand out to you from the Larry Sanders show? Well, well, I, I mean, <laughs> Brad Gray, uh, I, I went to the taping of the show more than once, but one time I was there, Brad did say to me once, uh, I just want you to know, we are shamelessly stealing from your book. <laughs> yeah, we wanted to ask you about that because there is, in an episode in, uh, of the Larry Sanders show, they do uh, kind of recreate the scene of Leno hiding in the closet, except yeah, with Larry. That, that, that was a particular point he wanted to make with me, that they were going to steal that <laughs> Uh, How did you feel? And about I was that? all for it. You know, I was like, okay, great. That's great for me. You know, it just publicizes my book a little bit more. So, in an, in an article you wrote in 1993, um, you mentioned how much accuracy mattered to Gary Shandling when he was writing. Um, one example of this is uh, I'm quoting you here, paraphrasing you. Um, he said the writers needed to put the exact number of cars Leno owned to make a joke about Leno owning cars more realistic. Um, <laughs> it, it just gets to the brilliance of both the way they were approaching the satire and how deeply enmeshed Shandling was in this world. 
Um, so how, in general, how accurate do you think the show was in its satire? It was extremely accurate, but obviously exaggerated. I mean, that that's <laughs> clearly what was its strength, is that it, it, it took the kernel of the, of the events and spun it into this fictional world where the characters were, you know, two degrees crazier than the real people or whatever, and 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 played with facts in a in a in a, in a way that made people appreciate it because it it felt completely real because the basis was so real, and then they had they had stuff happening that made people say, "What? I can't, I can't believe this!" But they had just seen so much that was real that they went with it. You know, they, there was a complete willing suspension of disbelief with this show, completely. Because you were like, oh, wow, this is exactly how they do this kind of stuff. Yeah. And and I, I think they pulled that off so, so well. So you've already mentioned a couple of your uh, relationships and experiences with Gary Shandling and Brad Gray. Um, and it's, it's clear you had sort of an up-close and personal uh, relationship with the show as it was in production. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping to ask you about a couple of your other experiences. You mentioned that you went to tapings in front of a live studio audience. Um, can you yeah. give us a sense of the room? Who was invited? What was the crowd like? What time and date? Yeah, it was, uh, it was you know, an audience of people would get tickets free. It's not an admission thing. Uh, and they'd want to have a good crowd, and it would be treated like the opening of a real late night in the sense that a comic would come out and warm up the crowd. Right. And, you know, they're going to, they tell them what it was going to be. There's Larry, the Larry character would come out and do his monologue, whatever. Um, I think they would do the panel scenes in some sequence right after the, the monologue as though it was the late night show, even though there'd be obvious scenes that were not supposed to be seen by an audience <laughs> if they'd been in the real studio, you know what I mean? Artie talking to Larry or whatever, right? At the desk, you know? But the, but the monologue was a thing to go to in LA for young fans of the show. So they would, you know, write in for tickets and et cetera. And there would always be, a lot of celebrities would come to, to just hang out, even if they weren't in the show. They'd just come because it was a, it was a thing to, to hang out at the show, at least in those early years. And uh, I mean, I can't remember all the people I saw there, but I would always see somebody, you know, just coming to say hi to Gary or whatever. And it was just a scene. I guess it was a great scene. When you were when you were there watching it, did it feel like you were watching a late night show the way they're trying to portray it? Like when you watch it Absolutely. on air, did it feel yeah. in person like you were watching a real late night show being made? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the monologue and the panels discussions absolutely felt like a real late night show. Which is what they wanted you to think, of course. So uh, we're going to wrap up. I have one last question for you. Um, it seems to me that the Larry Sanders show premiered at exactly the right time in television history. It's months after Carson retired. Uh, all of these feuds are happening. It's uh, Leno and Letterman are capturing the headlines every week. Um, and it became this large saga throughout the country. So it was it was perfect to satirize it contemporaneously on a separate channel, right? Um, is there any other saga you've seen in TV history um, that had an opportunity to be satirized like this, whether it's, you know, Fernwood Tonight satirizing 
talk shows in the 70s or 30 Rock satirizing SNL in the aughts? I have to say, you know, I have written about television for a long, long time, and Larry Sanders show is an as a one of a kind show. I mean, it really is a one of a kind show that brought in this broad, this this clever, biting satire, but was a really funny, successful sitcom on its own. I mean, it really had. Uh, all, unique elements and I, I don't think it's to me it's very hard to compare anything to it and when people rank shows now and you know we just did a documentary on the history of the sitcom you know it's hard how do you put Larry Sanders in there I mean we did but I mean it's like it's it's not like the others it's quite unlike the others and and I you know I had great great admiration for it and you know, I only wish Gary had been around to talk to, for sure. Yeah, we, we wish uh, that were the case as well. Um, all right, Bill Carter, thank you so much for your time. You've been incredibly generous yes, with us. thank you so much. We really appreciate all this insight you've provided, tons of information for us to think about. All right, well, thanks, guys. And if anybody really does want to read my book, I, I, I do. it only became recently available in a digital version. So you can get... Uh, through Open Road Media, you can get the uh, the late shift, and uh, and I get money from that, so I guess I should keep talking about it. Great, and I'll recommend to our listeners if they haven't listened to uh, Bill's series Behind the Desk: The Story of Late Night. It's a podcast Great produced podcast. by CNN. It's excellent. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Bill. All right, we are back on It's the Larry Sanders Show's show. Uh, today we're talking about Season 1, Episode 5, The New Producer. So the episode starts with Hank's classic uh, applesauce intro, the cold open uh, over the title credits. Then we go into the title credits for the show within the show. Uh, on today's show, Larry has Angelica Houston, uh, The Black Crows, and Jeff Cesario. Now, uh, I'm not sure what Angelica Houston was promoting at the time. Uh, I don't believe she had a movie that came out that year, at least with a major role. She's a big star. She can come on whenever she wants. True, true. But uh, the Black Crows were likely promoting their album, The Southern Harmony and Musical Companion. Mm. So then we start with Larry's monologue. Uh, and it's a really pretty short monologue. He only tells a couple jokes. And uh, he also, I want to point out, continues to not say no flipping. He says in this episode, don't flip around. The big absence that we see here is that Artie is not producing this show. Yes, uh, as we'll get into, there's uh, Artie is sick um, at home and there's a new producer. Uh, so next uh, we go to the middle of uh, Jeff Cesario on the panel with Larry. Presumably he did a stand-up set and then was called over to the couch, uh, as Carson famously did with many of his guests. But here we then meet uh, the guest producer, Jonathan Littman. He's at in Artie's spot at the monitor offstage, playing the same role, gesturing uh, to Larry when they're running out of time. I think he, he does a very odd, untraditional gesture. Now that we've seen Artie a few times, he does this like weird, you know, look at the watch, cut the throat 
sort of hand gesture. And Artie has had an emergency appendectomy, and so that's why they've had to call in uh, Jonathan Littman, played by Ian Buchanan, uh, who some of us, some of you may know if you're big Shandling heads as a regular on It's Gary Shandling's show. And then also for his amazing role on Twin Peaks, David Lynch's Twin Peaks, and then also for, uh, you know, for being a soap opera star on many soap operas, as well as on David Lynch's rarely seen show that he made after Twin Peaks on the air, which uh, Ian Buchanan was actually the star of, but it didn't really go very far. Um, I also want to note, as I'm talking about formal elements here, um, there's a great shot of Littman at the monitor right before he gets invited on stage. And there's a mise on a beam. So that's the camera is picking up Littman at the monitor, which is picking up the monitor. And so the monitor also features Littman at the monitor, which features Littman at the monitor right. and so on. Um, which is fun. Occasionally you do actually see that on television when they show a producer, or a monitor gets in the frame. And it's also a great uh, moment having Jeff Cesario as the guest on here because he would eventually become a writer for the Larry Sanders show uh, not the show within the show, but the actual Larry Sanders show that we're talking about. And he has had a long uh, connection with uh, Gary Shandling. Yeah, so he and Dennis Miller, I believe in the late 80s, uh, would write for Shandling when he was a guest host on The Tonight Show. Um, and so they probably have some history and he, you know, this was a little bit of a way to feature him. Uh, next, we go to Artie's home. So we're, as we're watching the show, we then see that Artie's watching the same thing on his screen. Again, a use of the television, so capturing the television. Um, Artie's, you know, in his recliner, a nurse is at his side. They speak Spanish together, which is a very funny interaction right. we see multiple times in this episode. Um, and Artie exclaims, not once in six years did he ever invite me on stage. And I find this to be very interesting for the specific reason that the Larry Sanders show is incredibly inconsistent about how long it has been on the air. So I think we should just note here that they have, you know, stated here that the show appears to have been on for at least six years. And we'll note in future episodes when they uh, change radically their tune. A less interesting uh, piece of trivia about the biographies within the show um, is that Larry and this guest producer, Jonathan Littman, met in 1980 at the BBC. We have no idea what that means, but just a, an interesting tidbit. And it's interesting that Artie in this scene is also, you know, he's very critical of Littman, uh, you know, not just as his replacement, but also that he's, you know, changing certain things about the show in his absence, including allowing Jeff Cesario to do panel, even though it's his only his first time doing stand-up on the show. Showing, you know, Artie very much in this Fred de Cordova um, influenced by the Tonight Show, the rules of the actual Tonight Show. Right. He says it's a bad precedent, which I sort of agree with. Um, this scene also features, I think, Max, maybe one of your favorite lines of season one. Uh, Como se dice horseshit? And the nurse clarifies caca de caballo. It's a great moment. Yeah. Um, and then the nurse asks whether they can watch Letterman. <laughs> and it's, it also, yeah. And it's, it also is one of the great like rip torn as is the same as Artie. Like the fact that he's taking his medication after his appendectomy with tequila, uh, you know, it just shows the, you know, exactly the type of persona that rip torn has that he brought to Artie. Right. Uh, so uh, presumably the next day 
uh, we see we're back in the show office. Uh, Larry's in the elevator coming up uh, and is interacting with the fan in the elevator. Um, and there's an, you know, they use this very old joke where the elevator doors are closing as she's still talking. And Larry just sort of, I don't know, it's a, like a strange moment. He um, crushes the paper in his hand, which I think is supposed to suggest like he hates interacting with fans, but also wanted to hear her finish saying how great he was. Well, that's an interesting interpretation because I thought it was a a flirtatious moment and that that was like a sexual frustration crumpling and that it kind of foreshadows uh, Larry, you know, the ways in in some of the episodes this season, Larry uh, uses his celebrity for potential uh, sexual conquest. I fully agree with that interpretation as well. I think it's a multifaceted crunching of the paper we also see as Larry's walking into the office, just a funny moment where Phil seems to have a nosebleed. He's holding his nose and just like talking, but walking away. It's a very odd thing to be happening. Um, just, you know, the one of the main things about the Larry Sanders show that, you know, comes up seemingly every episode is that there's always commotion. There's always a million people doing things all at the same time in order to make the show look smooth and seamless when it actually gets on the air exactly uh so network the network executive sam fitzgerald is in the office he sort of surprises and interrupts larry um and uh wants to to meet to him meet with him um larry asks where melanie Parrish, who we saw in the first episode uh where she is and she's on uh, parental leave but not pregnant and here i i want to note we see sort of like the office rumor mill yeah. Uh, grinding. And we'll see this, you know, across many, many episodes through the series. Um, I also want to note Darlene and Jerry are talking in the background during this scene. You just get a glimpse of them, which again is more, I think maybe more foreshadowing within this episode as well as other episodes as they, Jerry tries to repeatedly flirt with Darlene. Mm. So Larry introduces Fitzgerald to Littman and Fitzgerald mentions that the network has read Littman's memo with suggestions for the show, and they really like those suggestions. And then Larry says, let's not talk about this in, you know, out in the open where everyone can hear, because one of the main themes of this episode is going to be the sort of uh, hysteria that can happen around an office. So they move into the into Larry's office to talk about it. Right. And it's a it's a relatively, um you know, polite and simple conversation here. They you know, sort of compliment each other. Littman's doing well. He did great work uh, with Damon Wayans on his Cinemax special. I'll note Damon Wayans didn't do a Cinemax special at this time. He actually had an HBO special in 1991. So it's interesting. Naming competitors. Yeah. Um, But the real meat of this scene, at least in my opinion, is Carson is retiring. So I have this quote here. Too much change too soon isn't good for the system. This is what Larry says. Right. But the response from the network executive, Sam Fitzgerald, is we need to change. This is a moment where the Carson regime is fading and everyone's scrambling. We have the opportunity to beat Arsenio and Leno and eventually Letterman. It's Yeah, it's exactly the same message that Melanie Parrish gives in her appearance in The Garden Weasel, which is that the network of the you know the landscape of network late night television is rapidly changing and it's extremely competitive and this guy Fitzgerald seems to be very very uh very much a go-getter and is attempting to try and uh use use Littman's ideas to get Larry over the top 
But clearly Larry is uncomfortable with this, especially without his main man, his enforcer, his protector already there to, you know, figure this out for him. And back to the rumor mill just for a second, uh, Sam Fitzgerald sort of confides in them, you know, don't tell anyone, but uh, Melanie Parrish attempted suicide with an overdose of Halcyon uh, because her live-in boyfriend left her. And again, great line, this business will do that to you. Just sort of taking it as a given that, you know, Hollywood crushes people in this way. So then they move over to the writer's room where Phil and Jerry have smuggled in a copy of the memo that Littman wrote and they are reading it together. They, uh, Phil mentions that he stole it from Larry's locked desk. And, you know, the issues are, you know, not really that interesting at first, just new graphics that first time standups can do panels. And then they joke about the guitar player being uh, a weed smoker. And uh, we, we see through the window of the writer's room, the guitar player being taken away by security. Uh, this guitar player, at least in my opinion, looks like Sideshow Bob from The Simpsons. I doubt that's intentional. Check out but that hair. He has that, you know, that wild curly hair. Um, another thing I want to note here as we're talking about appearance is Jerry, played by Jeremy Piven, is wearing an extremely ugly but very 1990s button-down shirt which I think is made to look like bricks. It's sort of looks like it's bricks in mortar. Hmm. I don't I know if that's the that. intention of the pattern, but it's, if you didn't you're notice telling me, it, You're telling me you wouldn't wear that? Current day me would not wear that. Maybe me in 1992? as a, you know, handsome, slightly pudgy 1992 comedy writer. Uh-huh. Maybe I would wear that shirt. I don't know if that's going to make Darlene look at me, you know? True. I don't think anything would do that. But for Jerry and Phil, the bigger issue is that the memo says that the monologues are becoming, you know, soft and predictable, just like the Leno monologues. And they said that Phil is the man to fix things, except for the fact that he is socially maladjusted and volatile, which I think, uh, based on what we've seen on the show, is pretty true. So next we go to um, Darlene's desk where she's uh, crying and Jerry attempts to console her. Um, we learn Darlene is not mentioned in the memo, but is crying on the behalf of Hank uh, because uh, they think Hank doesn't grab the younger audience. They're looking for a sidekick uh, that will grab a younger audience. And Darlene you know, says, Hank's only 34. Jerry responds, are you kidding me? And then they have a they have a nice moment sort of revealing the artifice. The next scene uh, picks up with uh, the show in the show. Uh, we're on panel here with an unnamed guest. Did you were you able to look up who this guest is? I, I have no idea. I just left him as unnamed guest. OK. Um, and we're in the middle of a segue to the commercial. And then when the commercial hits, uh, the plant wrangler comes out to rearrange some plants behind Larry just in the middle of a commercial break, which is extremely odd. Um, But it's because of the memo. You know, he feels like he's been attacked by the memo about the plants um, and wants to appease Larry, but Larry's uncomfortable, you know, playing the boss here. Yeah, this is one of the the first signs of the breakdown of how the show should be run. And it's especially problematic because the plants are Artie's favorite thing on the show he's constantly tending to the plants so any change to that is really 
a slap in the face to Artie. We next cut to uh, presumably immediately after the uh, taping of the show. Um, we have a staff meeting in the writer's room uh, to talk about the memo and for the staff to you know share some of their grievances about the memo. Larry starts off, I think, a, a relatively good move for a boss here is to say, you know, he's pissed off as well. The memo was confidential. He doesn't agree with many of the things said in the memo. So he's sort of on the side of uh, the workers here in this confrontation. Um, but it falls apart pretty quickly. And I think that this is also, this scene has one of the great Hank Jeffrey Tambor moments when he enters and is stunned. He's wondering whether the show has been canceled. He asks if Artie's died. And then, he, you know, he acts like he doesn't know about the memo. So it's it, it really is one of the great moments of Jeffrey Tambor being able to, you know, play Hank as, you know, where you're unsure whether he is, is he dumb? Is he just bumbling? Or is he actually extremely good at manipulating the situation? I, I love Hank in these situations because it's a mix of, yes, he's actually dumb, but also a mix of he knows enough about the perception of him to play with it and to like manipulate and get, get what he wants. I think, I think Hank is in some cases misunderstood on this point. I think in some cases he is actually manipulating. Oh yeah. And then he puts a great capper on the scene by pulling his own copy of the memo out of his pocket. Uh, So then Larry leaves the meeting um, and goes back to the soundstage, back to the desk uh, where Littman is talking to, um, you know, some, some member of the crew named Diane about the carpet. He's, he's thinking of changing things up um, enough to get, get new carpet put down. Uh, Larry pulls him away and then they, they have this great uh, walk and talk. It's done in one shot where we follow them off the soundstage behind into the hallway. um, And they're, you know, sort of debating about the security camera here. And so then we get into Larry's office where, you know, he and Lippman are arguing about the memo. And I think that this is one of those moments where the Larry now has to deal with the hysteria around the office. And he and Larry hates doing that. This is why he has Artie. And, you know, he doesn't want to be he doesn't want to be feared. He doesn't want people to worry because of the memo. And, you know, this is why Artie is the perfect producer for Larry. What's interesting, though, is that Littman wants to do some of those things. But I think Littman Littman is more open with Larry about what he wants to do. Because he he says very explicitly he wants to motivate the staff with Mm. fear. He thinks that will, you know, light a fire under them, get them to work harder. In, In some ways, he's... He's exposing the fact he's an exploitative boss, whereas Artie, I think, tries to hide that often, or at least hide that from Larry. This episode is one of those episodes that's about what happens when someone isn't there to do their role in the family of the office unit, is that Artie, as much as we've seen that he can be a manipulator, that he can tell people what to do and order them around and you know be sometimes cruel, he really does know what makes everyone in the office tick and how to actually get the best out of them and to make them do the best job that they can do. You know, whereas Littman is just, you know, this British guy coming in who doesn't know them. And so he's using, you know, what he thinks of as correct managerial tactics to to push them and motivate them. But I don't think it's actually working as the hysteria shows. 
Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So at the end of the scene, Littman uh, promises that Artie will not see the memo. And that's especially important because there's a line about the plants. Right. And this is comedic because then cut to Artie's living room where he is reading the memo and reading about the plants. And he is mad because he is the plants. I am those plants. God damn it. And then we cut back to Hank's office where Hank is freaking out about the memo and talking with Darlene about it. And we see another uh, classic walk and talk for the Larry Sanders show done in one shot. It's a little bit shorter, but we see, you know, Hank and Darlene move into his office. Um, And Hank says, you know, he's very conspiratorial now. He thinks everyone's getting fired. Yep. You know, the show's going under, blah, blah, blah. Uh, So he calls up his agent. And we haven't met his agent at this point in the show, but he will come many times. Mm-hmm. This is a character I love, Sid Bessel. We don't hear Sid. The conversation with Sid is very brief. It's almost as if Sid doesn't get an opportunity to talk on the phone with Hank, which is a little funny. Um, but they, you know, he says, you know, get it done, you know, work for me, blah, blah, blah. These moments also when when someone like Hank or when any of the staff really are feel like they have their backs up against the wall, we kind of see something very interesting about who they really are. Hank does things like reciting uh, a psalm. Psalm uh, 23-4. Thank there you. you go, about the valley of death. And, you know, he goes back and starts thinking about, you know, all the you know recriminations that Littman has towards him, getting him fired from a cruise ship. Uh, the Queen Elizabeth II. Did you find anything out about the Queen Elizabeth too? Um, yeah, it's a British ship. Uh, it's now retired. It retired in 2008, and it currently serves as a floating hotel. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Uh, so he really needs Sid to protect him because Hank is feeling extremely vulnerable. In our next scene, uh, we're in Larry's office. Larry's at the desk. Um, Darlene does the now classic, you know, entering to say, Hank would like to speak with you now, and then Hank enters. But Larry sort of confuses the situation he he doesn't want to talk to hank so it sort of ruins it but hank still manages to poke his head in get his foot in and then actually talk to him although hank is not the centerpiece of it at all he has amazing scenes because of how desperate the hank character always is and so under pressure that desperation comes out even further so under pressure you produce a diamond earring, Max. Yes, he has got he has got his left ear pierced because he wants to look younger and hipper. So the the camera does a great job here, where we we stay on one side of Hank. We get I think like one or two glances that he has an earring, but it we just the dialogue sort of slowly comes together that he has an earring, but we don't see it and we don't see it and we don't see it. Right until Hank sits down and Larry starts poking his ear. Right. Larry is very cruel to Hank about this whole situation. Uh, you know, he tries to convince him that it's that the earring is infected, and then he makes the joke about the left ear being the gay ear, something that uh, Hank didn't realize. Yeah, so I thought the right ear was the gay ear. That's what I learned in middle school. Right, so it seems like everyone learns in middle school, and it's always middle school, this is when homophobia comes into your life, that the right ear was gay the gay ear and i looked it up and the thing is is that the symbology of the earring is not never was codified so there never really was a gay ear and a straight ear for earrings which is very much different than the handkerchief code which was used in cruising to you know explain sexual preferences 
back in the much more underground days of gay culture, there were bandanas that people would wear in the backs of their jeans and different colors had different meanings of what you were cruising for. That is, you know, that's the type of symbology that Larry is joking around with, but it was all confused just a year before this episode came out by a big article in the New York Times from 1991 about how the right ear was the gay ear. And so there's a whole confusion that's going on and it never really meant anything. And it was kind of just a outside straight observation attempting to make some sort of sense of, you know, gay culture that ended up being homophobic. Interesting. Hmm. So then Hank runs out and, uh, you know, he even runs by Darlene's desk, uh, running by asking for an ambulance because uh, he thinks that his ear is infected and he realizes uh, that this was a bad idea. So Hank is in full freakout mode. He opens the door to his office and he's surprised by Artie sitting on his couch and he's come to Hank to say goodbye. Artie is visibly drunk and he also admits he's high. He had some Demerol, which is a highly addictive uh, prescription drug. Um, and, uh, you know, the two of them start to, you know, sort of commiserate bond commiserate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, they, you know, talk about the earring, they talk about Hollywood, they end up, uh, or Artie ends up convincing Hank to drink with him. Um, I'll note Hank does the Polish cheers, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. Um, and then he cancels his ambulance because he's, you know, he's just going to get drunk tonight. That's his, his way to cope. So Hank has a has a great moment with um, Artie here where he says, you know, I want to be honest about something. I, I never talked to anybody about this, but I, I need to ask you a question, right? And it's embarrassing to ask this question. And he says, almost tearfully, do you think I skew to an older demographic? And then he and Artie get into this. Because to the performer, that is a deep personal emotional question right even as a man in hollywood Mm -hmm. him aging and quote-unquote skewing to an older demographic uh means that he's losing his relevance you know in in the way that you know at this time carson was basically only pulling in people who were what 50 and older 60 and older hank is afraid he's he's on that same trajectory Uh, but he and Artie have a very interesting and sort of frank conversation about hollywood Artie is Totally on point here about just the terrible aspects of show business. I wrote down this line, which I love from from Artie. I think it really captures a part of season one. This is just change for the sake of change. It's endemic to Hollywood. Yeah, and it, this is one of those moments where, yes, they are having these personal moments that are you know human, but you can't get away with using a line like that and say that this show is not a critique of show business and, you know, consumerism and, you know, the industry. Next, uh, we go back into Larry's office. Um, Hardy, Hardy and Hank, maybe I should call them Hardy. Uh, they just burst into Larry's office. He's, he's putting golf in his office, which is a very uh, weird, like elitist thing to do. Never understood that. Um, but they're clearly very drunk and mad about the memo they make reference to all sorts of things. Uh, and I just want to note here, the acting's really interesting. So Rip Torn, very good at playing drunk, I think probably has done, done this many, many times. times in many films. Um, and he's 
really good as Artie of doing an angry drunk. You know, it's the, I think they joke in later episodes, you know, the Irish in him really comes out when he's drinking and he's like stomping his feet and sort of almost throwing a tantrum like a child at times. Uh, Tambor, on the other hand, goes in a very different direction. He's sort of like silly and a little kooky. Um, and at one point he's also falling asleep on the couch. It's He's like all over the place, which still makes sense for Hank, who we yeah. don't see drink very often, but is clearly very drunk in this instance. And his halluc- starting to hallucinate that the earring is so infected that it's affecting his optic nerve and his, uh, you know, his ability to see. It's uh, They're both giving really, really great performances that are so different. And I think the fact that they are so different is what get, makes them effective when paired against Larry, who just is so confused by the entire situation because he doesn't believe the bad things about either of them. Yeah. And, you know, on, on Artie's end of the spectrum here, he has this great tirade about Larry needing suck-ups in the office. He just needs people who will fear him, which, you know, maybe unintentionally harkens back to Larry's conversation with Lippman about getting the workers to fear you as the boss. Um, but Artie, you know, has a different mode that he operates in when running the show. Um, and then, you know, as part of this tantrum, Artie ends up sort of spontaneously quitting the show, which is a very sad moment if that were actually the end. Uh, we next go to Larry coming into the conference room as a uh, Litman and the network executive Fitzgerald uh, are there to meet with him. Um, or sorry, they're meeting and Larry interrupts the meeting. Yeah. Uh, he needs to talk to Littman because Littman needs to talk to Artie to assure Artie that, that everything's going to be okay. Yeah. He's not being pushed out. Yeah. The twist of course, is that Littman does have interest in taking Artie's job. In fact, it seems like he's under contract negotiations with the network at this very moment. Or, yeah. That Fitzgerald is at least scheming to try and do this. And he says that Sheldon, the higher up at the network, does agree and wants to bring in Littman. But Larry calls his bluff. So Larry uh, grabs the memo off the table that they've been talking about and, you know, looks up the parts that are talking about him now, which we have not heard for the whole episode. And as a very vain and nervous person, it's interesting that how much of this episode is taken up by other people's anxieties and insecurities not Larry's. Larry is kind of the stable one in this episode, which is pretty interesting, just dealing with the uh, hysteria that's going on around him. And uh, the memo really talks about his weaknesses as not being, you know, having characters that people seem to like in middle America, like Carson does. And, you know, he does, uh, you know, he's, he's clearly, you know, not that type of Carson comedian. So it's interesting that that is when they are specifically trying to use Larry to appeal to a younger audience, it's interesting that the critique is that he doesn't have some, you know, kind of lame characters, which then Larry jokes about by doing kind of a racist Asian voice uh, as one of his potential characters. So I guess it's good that he doesn't do characters on the show. Yeah. And what I love is that there's, there's this tiny moment when he does this very racist impression where it's actually being exposed to the office. Yeah. Like he how bad screams it, is. it out in front of the office and it's so clear how bad it is. And then he has this sort of look of like terror and embarrassment. Um, maybe not for the racism of it, but just how, how it's not very funny. 
Yeah. It's clearly played for laughs as cringe and bad comedy. Yeah. Uh, so next we cut to um, Artie packing up his monitor uh, and Larry uh, comes to talk him out of it. He uh, wants Artie to stay. He's been very supportive over the years. Um, and Art, he eventually convinces Artie. Uh, they have a little bit of a debate, which I think is funny about the uh, the scenery, the backdrop on the show, whether it's a sunrise or a sunset. I think it's pretty clear here. Artie wins the debate. It is a sunset. Um, but, you know, like Artie's conversation with Hank, they also talk about the ruthlessness of Hollywood that, uh, you know, Larry had to at least consider hiring Littman to replace Artie because that's just how the business works. It goes, yeah. But their bond is strong enough. Uh, in fact, Artie says, I love you, you bastard. Yeah, that's his ma- very masculine emotion. Yeah. Um, it's also funny in this little scene, uh, to my ears, Rip Torn's accent is all over the place. It's like a mix of almost New York and Texan mm. and a little bit of Irish. Uh, yeah, it's very, it's very strange. Um, and then in a classic sort of Larry Sanders twisting at the end, right after they, uh, you know, have this bonding moment and Artie's going to come back and do the show. We, uh, hear that Robert Morton, who is Letterman's executive producer is arriving to have lunch with Larry. So he really could be a threat to Artie, but absolutely. Yes. And so his first line when he comes up and looks around the set of the Larry Sanders show is to say, wow, they really do have a lot of plants. And there we cut to a freeze frame or we stop on a freeze frame uh, and Larry and Artie are looking at Robert Morton and, you know, have this this moment of terror and anxiety. And then the credits roll. So that's uh, the end of the recap portion of the show today. And uh, we'll take a quick break and be right back. back so this is the part of the show where we give our final thoughts on the episode in a way that makes fun of the season one episodes with alternative titles by giving them another unofficial new title but this week to make up for our previous episode and our guests um inconsiderate behavior we are first going to rename the guest host max what have you got so i will call the last week's episode the guest host no flipping and here's why. I saw this coming. Yes. We didn't get to talk about it. Yada, yada, yada. But actually, Dana Carvey's monologue in The Guest Host was the first time that anyone says no flipping, the famous catchphrase of the Larry Sanders show on the air. Larry has not even yet said no flipping on the air that we have seen. Only someone making fun of Larry has ever said it. So... For me, I think we need to celebrate that fact by naming the episode No Flipping. Uh, This is despite the last episode of the series, several years later, being called Flip. You want to name this season one, episode four, No Flipping. Well, we'll have to wait and see what I would retitle the final episode. So, Jason, what would you call the guest host? I unfairly have two titles. (laughs) Again? Uh, so the first one is Danish Carver, 
which is a great throwaway joke from mm. Jeremy Piven's character. Was it written? Jer- was it improv? I don't know. I don't know, but it's a it's a transition in a new scene where Carvey is talking to the writers in the writers' room, and Jeremy Piven's character Jerry is finishing up a story where it seems like maybe the punchline was uh, someone mistaking the name Dana Carvey for the phrase Danish Carver. I enjoy that. I think it's funny. I think it's a nice title. My alternative alternative is I saw this coming. A great line from Artie in the yes. episode. Yes. So now let's do this week's episode now that we've made up for last week. The new producer, Max, what have you got? Okay. So I would call the new producer on the air. And here is my reason why. You're going to call it on the air, but we are on the air. So what? A... Avin and Costello. No, what I want to call it on the air in reference to guest star Ian Buchanan, who I adore uh, on Twin Peaks, and also on the TV show on the air that we already spoke about, the the, sequ- the spiritual sequel to Twin Peaks, also made by David Lynch, uh, that he was the star of. And hopefully, uh, if I say the phrase on the air TV show made by David Lynch enough, uh, someone will finally put it out on Blu-ray. So I would call this episode Tactical Error. Interesting. It's a line from Ian Buchanan's character, the new producer, mm-hmm. saying that uh, he and the network executive Sam Fitzgerald made a tactical error in not getting Larry on board with uh, the staff change. But I think there are multiple tactical errors happening here. For instance, yep. writing the memo... Uh, the memo circulating, allowing it to be circulated. Gary doesn't handle it, or sorry, Larry doesn't handle it very well. Um, Artie gets Hank drunk, and then the two of them drunkenly confront Larry. Mm-hmm. These all accumulate over the course of the episode, which I think makes a nice uh, name to sort of capture the dynamic. I love it. This has been a special episode of It's the Larry Sanders Show show. So just like the talk shows that inspired the Larry Sanders Show, we have a great musical guest for you. Uh, thanks again to our music booker, Dan Golden, for booking this band. Jason and I are both big fans, so we're so excited to present live from the It's the Larry Sanders Show's show studio, Speedy Ortiz. Another as I was browsing the stacks And the books were falling
deserve to be here You drew a crowd and thrown it down Strictly speaking, self-care Even when I suffer, even when I suffer again Even when I suffer, even when I suffer again Thank you, Speedy Ortiz. That was great. And thank you to Davis Thurston for engineering the recording. That's all the time we have for this episode. We'd like to thank uh, Mr. Bill Carter again for joining us. Uh, Mr. Carter was very generous with his time. and Mr. Carter was great. Provided a lot of uh, great information. Um, as always, we'd like to thank Wendy Eisenberg for the theme music, Jody Bozine for the show artwork, and Dan Golden for booking our musical guests. You can find us on all social media with the handle at Larry Sanders Pod. That's on your Twitter, your Facebook, your Instagram, even your Letterboxd. Uh, we will be back next time with a discussion of Season 1, Episode 6, The Flirt, with an exclusive guest. What a get. Bye. Bye.